Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're starting this new chapter in chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Continuing in a series that could not come at a better time than right now. A series in which people are being called out, called out of the typical ways and rhythms in which the world lives to a different way of life, a kingdom way of life, where a select group of people in this text, in a particular area called Asia Minor, got born again, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then were called to a different way of life. And they found themselves at a conflict with the society and culture in which they lived. And yet God never told them, them, go escape from that place. He left them in Asia Minor, just as he left Daniel in Babylon, just as he left Moses in Egypt. Just as he left Jesus in, that, uh, uh, in the Galilean uh, fisherman village, so he leaves Christians in their place of context, just as we are in the city of Santa Barbara and Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and abroad. Jesus changes people. He sets them free. He fills them with power, and he leaves them where they're supposed to live. This book could not come at a greater time where Peter is telling people like that. Here's how you navigate the tension between this place that you probably sometimes want to leave sometimes with your calling to be there. We are simultaneously sent to these cities in which we live and yet set apart for the glory of God. And Peter has been writing this, talking about how to navigate the tension between those two. And one thing that it's constantly been coming up in that navigation is how to suffer well. And he's gonna continue to talk about that through that theme, but he's taking a slightly different nuance with that. And I wanna read, just starting verses one through six, chapter four of 1 Peter with you. I'll just read from the... uh, from start to finish, and we'll uh, look at what Peter is saying. It says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, that, through ju- uh, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. I want to talk from this text. I'm going to try to, to hit as much of it as possible. I'm, I might run out of time, but I'm going to 
certainly going to hit as much of it as possible. I want to talk about this theme of suffering couched in at least a few things that I think Peter's pulling out. One, the desire to live a transformed life. Two, I think he hits on a few obstacles to living a transformed life. And three, he talks about the power to live a transformed life. The desire, the obstacles, and the power in which to do it. Further driving the church into this journey, learning how to navigate what does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom in this mess. It has something to do with living a transformed life. When I say a desire to live a transformed life, I'm saying what perhaps many of you have been experiencing as God has been speaking to you through his word. As we've been looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like to suffer well and what it looks like to be a light in our culture and society, perhaps the Holy Spirit has begun to stir up, uh, stir up in your hearts and in your minds this passion to live for him. Maybe some of you have been, you know, weekend Christians. Maybe you describe yourself as a, like, I come to church uh, on Easter and Christmas, but then the rest of the year I kind of do my own thing. And maybe in the past few weeks or maybe in the past few months, you've been feeling this stirring in your soul. Like, is there more? Is there more that I can do with my life? Is there more that I can experience of God? I feel like I'm missing out on certain things. And maybe the word of God has been driving that deeper into your soul. And maybe some of you are saying, yes, I want to live a holy life for God. I want to live a set-apart life. I want to know how to suffer well. I want to be able to to withstand anything that is, is contrary to the kingdom of God and just be undivided in my devotion to God. And maybe you've even said that on Sunday, like during the second set of worship, after his sermon, in the middle of just singing, just like, yes, Lord. Only to go out Monday and have a, a very difficult time practically living up to that. Maybe Tuesday rolls around and you stumble into some things that you used to do in your past and maybe Wednesday rolls around. You're not just stumbling into old patterns, you're picking up new bad patterns. And then Thursday rolls around, you do something that you're absolutely ashamed of and then Friday, by the time you get to Saturday, you're like, I don't even know if I wanna go to church uh, gathering tomorrow morning. I've been a Christian for a little over a decade. I got born again at Reality in Carpinteria. I don't know what it was or how it happened. I didn't pray a sinner's prayer. No one cornered me and like made me fill out a paper or anything. Like I wasn't even looking to get saved. I, I, I thought I was because I had grown up in a Christian home my entire life. But a little over a decade ago, during worship, I went up to receive prayer and a a bunch of people laid hands on me and the Holy Spirit fell upon me in a way that I have never experienced before prior to that. It wasn't this kind of euphoric, crazy experience that you might expect. It was something inside. For the first time in my life, my desires changed. I'd been going to church all my life, but I did not desire some of the things that basic Christians tend to desire, like reading the Bible, loving Jesus, serving him, you know, typical stuff. It just wasn't there. 
And in that moment, my life inside and out began to change. And in that moment, looking back, I think that's when I got born again. The Spirit of God fell upon me, and from that moment, that was the delineating mark between the life I used to live and the life that would come after. My desires changed, my ambitions changed. I looked at sin differently. It all happened in a moment. After a few years, I started getting involved in ministry at this church before it was here in Santa Barbara, it was in Carpinteria. Got involved, started volunteering for a few years, going to prayer meetings, do all of that stuff. Years went by, got a job at the church, started working there part-time as an intern. A few more years went by, started working full-time, eventually became a pastor, which is why I'm here today. And somewhere along the line, years into my salvation story, I began to look at my life and start to see that there were things that weren't right. And it irked me a little bit because it, uh, I, I, would look, I would look at uh, patterns in my life and say, this, these things shouldn't belong in the life of somebody who's professing Christ. And it was things, you know, it wasn't like I had a problem murdering people or anything like that. I've gotten over that long ago. It was, you know, the basic, uh, what one author describes, the respectable sins, the ones that we're okay with, you know, like pride and anger and stuff like that, which we all probably experience from time to time. But for me, they had taken such a deep root in my life that it, it caused me to, uh, to step back and be shocked at, at the condition of my own life. I, I bring up that story because at that moment, I had been a Christian for almost a decade, or maybe seven or uh, eight or nine years. I was active in ministry. I was doing all the right things that you could expect. People would have looked at me and said, that is a Christian. I was a Christian. And yet there were patterns in my life of sin that I could not break. I would get so angry that my anger would turn into resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. It was so deeply ingrained in my heart that it controlled the way that I, I approached various things. I would come home and express some of that stuff in my family. I wasn't even mad at them. It was just integrately, uh, integrately, uh, integrately, gritly, integrately, integratedly. I'll take it. <laughs> Steeped into the deepest parts of me. And I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. There was a sense of pride in me, a, a desire to be loved and accepted by people that steered almost everything that I did. And I would look at those things and I'd be like, These, they, they had gotten to a place where they were so bad that if anyone saw the way that I behaved and what was in my heart, they would have been like, you shouldn't even be up there. You shouldn't even be a pastor. You're barely a Christian. I even thought those things about myself. Not only were there sins in my life that I, I, I couldn't get rid of, but even the good things in my life, my spiritual development had plateaued. Things like reading the Bible and praying, it just got dry and flat. I begin to look at my life and say, why, why does it seem this way? And perhaps some of you are asking that. Maybe you've been a Christian for 
5, 6, 2, 20, 30 years. And perhaps you're asking a similar question that I was years ago. Why doesn't my life as a Christian look different? Why am I not walking in this victory that we, we often sing about? Why do I keep falling into the same patterns and in the same habits? Why, why, why do I not have that transformed life that this preacher keeps talking about every Sunday? The reason I believe Peter would have us understand is because if you are a Christian, number one, there is a war inside of you. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't been born again, there is no war. There's no conflict within you. Your whole being is going in a single direction away from God in rebellion. No war, no problem. It's in the Christian that there's a war, a conflict between two different things. And Peter describes some of these things, these obstacles to a transformed life. If you're asking this today, why isn't my life different than it was yesterday or last year? Why can't I grow? Why do I struggle with the same sins, whether it's uh, things that are uh, uh, outward and vivid like pornography or alcoholism or drug abuse or anger to inner sins that no one else but you can see like anger and pride? Peter says there are, basically points out two things that are an obstacle to our growth. One is the passions of the flesh. He brought this up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You remember? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I want you to notice a couple things in this text that he's speaking about all these different elements of the human person. All things that are a part of who you are. The flesh, right? The passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's something inside of you that is raging. It's a conflict of interest. Now, a couple uh, explanatory terms. Some of these words might not make sense. I want to explain them real quick. One is the flesh. The flesh is probably what you expect. It's the physical body. But it's also the functions of your body. It's not only your, you know, your fingers and your hands and your mouth and your head, although it is those things. It's the functions of those, those elements of the body. So it's your natural powers. The flesh speaks of your abilities. It speaks of your actions and your behaviors. All of the things that come from moving and acting in the body, it's your words and then there's that word passions. What are passions? It doesn't, passions here, when Peter and Paul use it, isn't the same way that we use passions. Like, I am passionate about such and such. That's not what he means. Passions in the Bible usually refers to the cravings, impulses, and appetites of the flesh. So we have a body, we have behaviors and actions, and in that are wrapped up these inner cravings and impulses and appetites. We desire certain things. And in scripture, it's usually couched in language of sin. Like we can have, bad, we can have good cravings, but the Bible usually speaks of the bad cravings, cravings that are contrary to God's will. So when we speak of passions of the flesh, we're speaking about that innate, inward desire inside of you to want to do things that are contrary to God's will. Peter would say in our text in the middle, for the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. 
In other words, the time is over for what you used to want to do, what people still want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's speaking here about a, a list, not an exhaustive list, but he's, he's throwing out a few areas in which we see the passion of our flesh. One, uh, perhaps uh, you enjoy... Perhaps you enjoy food and drink and celebration and hospitality. That's a good passion. But our flesh wants to overdo it, wants to get drunk, wants to eat too much. Sexuality, good thing in the Bible, meant to glorify God, meant for people's joy. But obviously we can take that, mar it, distort it, use it outside of God's parameters, the passions of the flesh. So many things in our life, from money to relationships to places to status that are good things, but we can turn them into lawless idolatry by blowing their importance out of proportion. Now, these are some passions of the flesh, but there are many. And when you got born again, those things did not disappear. When I got born again 10 years ago, or 12 years ago, excuse me, those passions of the flesh did not just disappear from my life. When you got born again, those passions of the flesh did not just disappear from your life. New desires were reborn in your heart, but there are still the old desires. And in the, in the Christian, those cravings are conflicting with one another, and they're putting up a fight inside of you all the time. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 22 through 23, he put it this way. He said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, I want you to see this, this thing emerging out of some of these texts. Look at all the various parts of the human person. The inner being, another word for the spirit. The members, another word for the flesh. My mind, you know, the way that we think. All of these things that make you you. And there's a war going on between them at the level of your flesh. Peter then says in chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from the bad cravings of your flesh because they're going to tear your life apart. What does he mean? They're going to tear you apart from the inside out. Paul would also go on later to say, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Peter's speaking from more of a standpoint of, hey, if you don't do this, if you don't put away those old cravings, your life is gonna fall apart. It's almost a beating heart for believers. But Paul comes in and says, hey, it's not just about you. It's about God. And if you're one with Christ, you have to put away those cravings. You have to crucify them. Don't just put them on a shelf and entertain them for later. They are dead. You must bring to them a stop, death. The rest of us would look at that and say, yeah, amen, Paul. I'm gonna do it. Happy Sunday, everybody. Monday comes along, okay. I am killing the old desires. Oh, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Someone cuts you off on the highway. Yeah, okay, okay. Passions of the flesh, an obstacle to the transformed life. That brings up, because some of you are saying, I, I know all of that. I know that we're supposed to put away the old passions of the flesh, those old desires. 
but I can't. Second obstacle to a transformed life, habits of the flesh. Passions of the flesh, habits of the flesh. These two things are all over Paul and Peter's letters. What do I mean by habits? Habits. Sometimes, perhaps you have this craving that is contrary to God. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's anger, unforgiveness, bitterness. Maybe you just wanted a few too many drinks. Could be a number of things. But maybe take an example where you don't listen to God. Instead of repenting, you brush it off as, as something minor. You do it again. You do it again. After a while, you find that some of those cravings that were maybe easier to stop at the beginning are hard to stop feeding. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh, looking at stuff that you shouldn't. And maybe you get to a place where you've been doing it so much, it's just hard. Come home from work and that's all you want to do. And you're a well-meaning Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, You love Jesus, you love God, you love the church, and you would say, I want to serve God. I want to walk in his footsteps. I just can't do what I'm supposed to do when it matters. And I keep doing the things that I hate about myself. What happened? Habits. Habits are the other part of your flesh that become an obstacle to the transformed life. Writer by the... uh, Science writer by the name of Charles Duhigg wrote a, a book called The Power of Habit where he, he basically described the, neurologically how habits in your mind work. When a habit is formed, you have to understand the way that God made our bodies is that the will, we have a will which, which makes decisions. When you say, I am, I, I am going to live for Christ, your will is deciding, it is willing to follow after God. Neurologically, when we make the same decision with our mind over and over and over and over again, something interesting happens. There's a spot in your brain called the basal ganglia that is outsourced that particular routine over and over. So the brain says, I've done this so many times, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to outsource it to this part of my brain that will kind of do it on autopilot. And the brain stops making decisions. Charles Duhigg, basically, uh, just quote him right now. He says, when a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision making. It stops working so hard or it diverts focus to other tasks. So unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines, the pattern will unfold automatically. That sounds eerily familiar to something that the Apostle Paul said. He said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Habits. Habits are a part of your flesh. And we are required to fight not only our passions, but some of those ingrained habits that have been formed after years of going in the opposite direction of God. And some of you have been saved after decades of living in sin. 
It's an incredible power of God to take you out of bondage, but you have to understand that you are taking into your new life old patterns and habits that you must break. And yet many of us struggle with that, right? I struggle with some of those certain patterns. Throughout the, the, uh, my life as a Christian, it's been a struggle in certain areas. The flesh is a monumental force within you. And we are filled with these sinful cravings and hundreds of daily habits that reinforce those, the power of those cravings over us. And so we're, we're forced to ask, what do we do now? What do we do about the fleshly cravings that fill us, that form us, that constantly battle our inner desire to live for Jesus? And this is where Peter alludes not to the obstacles to a transformed life, but now to the power for a transformed life. Look at what he says right in verse 1. You want to know how to live a transformed life or the process? How to be set free? How to walk in that freedom? Look at this. Since Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That word, to, that phrase to arm yourself comes from a Greek word which is a military term in the heat of battle where people were required to be ready and alert with their weapons of choice, knowing in the heat of the battle that something was coming their way, they were not to fall asleep, they were to be absolutely ready and vigilant and, uh, and on guard. One writer describes uh, this situation, and perhaps you've noticed this, where we plateau after after we learn a, or acquire a new skill. Could be anything from learning how to type or a language or riding a motorcycle or fly fishing. But whatever it is, you acquire a new skill. And perhaps the first initial stages, you get pretty good at it. But at a certain point, you get to this place where you actually reach what, what, uh, what he calls the okay plateau. The point at which you decide you're okay with how, you good, uh, how good you are at something, you turn on autopilot and you stop improving. It's our mind basically saying, I am efficient enough at this certain thing. I am just going to be okay with where I'm at. And you go on autopilot. Calls it the okay plateau, Joshua 4. The opposite of that, the opposite of this okay plateau of going on autopilot, of just coasting along, is Peter's call to arm yourself with this same way of thinking. In other words, Peter is saying, it is not okay to coast along. You're not going to survive if you coast. You're not going to survive if you go on autopilot. I am calling all of you to arm yourselves with vigilance with a particular way of thinking. And so the way that we're arming ourselves isn't with weapons like guns and swords. It is with a certain mindset, right? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. A mindset that is deeply engaged in focus. This has been a pattern throughout Peter all the way from the beginning. The way that our minds are, are locked in to the path, to the, to the uh, to the choices at hand. First Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Don't go to sleep. 
Don't go on autopilot. First Peter chapter four, verse seven, we'll see this next week. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, when he speaks about the attacks of Satan, he says, you must be sober-minded, be watchful. The Christian cannot go on autopilot in these days. We must be vigilant with a particular mindset. Now, here's what Peter then says about the mindset that we're supposed to adopt. I want you to adopt the same mindset that Jesus had. What did he do? He suffered in the flesh. I want you to have the mindset of suffering in the flesh. To be prepared to suffer in the flesh with the same mindset that Jesus did. Now, he's not saying, I want you to go out and and try to suffer. That would be weird. The Bible just tells us that in this world, we're going to have trials and tribulation and hardship. It's just going to be there. We don't need to chase it down. He's saying we must have this, when suffering comes, we must have the same mindset about suffering that Jesus also had. Pathway to transformation here. So how did Jesus approach suffering? There's probably a lot of different examples in the New Testament we could look to. I want to pick on one that kind of gives a broad vignette for most of them. His suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was faced with two different options, right? I can either go to the cross or I cannot. I can either go to the cross and suffer uh, desperately or I can find a different way, evade suffering, save my life. He brings that request to the Father and he says, is there any other way? Could you have, would, you, would you let this cup pass? Is there any other way to save people than for me to undergo what I am about to undergo? And there wasn't. And you remember his response in the face of suffering. Not my will, but yours be done. You want to know what the mindset is that Jesus had when suffering came? A willingness to suffer in the flesh rather than sin against the Father. Jesus would rather take the hard road than to do anything that would offend the glory of his Father. So what does that look like for us? It means that I, Chris Lazo, facing whatever it is at the moment, whether it's pride or anger or, uh, you know, fill in the blanks, I would rather in that moment redirect my flesh through something difficult rather than sin against the God that I love. Another word for this is choosing self-denial. I could either take the easy route where I will actually dishonor my God and myself, or I can take the hard route where I can actually worship God and become more like Christ. I'm taking the hard route, self-denial. At my own expense, I'm taking the hard route, self-denial. You say, why on earth would I want to do that? Well, if you are desiring to live a transformed life, look at the next line that Peter says. Whoever has suffered... Listen to this. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You're just kidding, Peter. Silly Peter. No, this is what he says. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever has that mindset and is growing in it, has ceased from sin. In other words, to adopt that mindset about suffering, to enter into a life 
that is based on the cross, based on suffering even though we are doing good, putting away the flesh and choosing God even when it comes at our own expense, to be able to step into that pattern and adopt those newer types of habits and patterns is the pathway to living a holy life. It is part of it. When the church historically, starting in the New Testament and on, has looked at this and said, how do we do it? For centuries and centuries, leading all the way back to the apostles, they have unanimously said spiritual disciplines. To do this, to redirect my flesh towards God, rather than sin against him, is to discipline myself by adopting a particular practice. Now listen, practices and spiritual disciplines will not transform you. Reading your Bible a thousand times a day is not in itself going to transform you. Praying a lot is not going to transform you. Coming to church, not going to transform you. Then why do we do them? Only God can transform a broken person like you or me. What practices do is posture you so that you can receive from God's transforming power. Paul would, uh, excuse me, Peter would say later that we are to adopt this mindset, suffer in our flesh if need be, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There it is right there. I am exchanging my old habits and old routines for the uh, passions of the flesh, and I am going this way towards the will of God. How do we do that? By instilling in our lives practices and disciplines that open us up to the presence of God and to the power of God. There are literally so many, hundreds, anything that you could do. But if you wanted to categorize them in a helpful way, one author described uh, spiritual practices and disciplines in two ways. There are some that have to do with abstinence where you are, you are withdrawing from a particular thing. We could say, since Peter said, we're to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There are certain practices where you are, you are practicing to pull away from things that entice the passions of your flesh. These could be things like solitude, pulling away from the noise. Could be things like fasting, I'm pushing my, ap- my physical appetites down so that I, uh, my spiritual appetite has room to breathe. It could be things like simplicity. In a city like Santa Barbara where there's this constant pressure to have so much, I don't need stuff. The only thing I truly need is God. I'm gonna practice that. There's also practices of engagement. If ab- uh, practices of, uh, of abstinence is I am stepping away from things that have a, have a deep hold on my soul Practices of engagement are I am stepping into the presence of God in this vari- these variety of ways. These could be things, uh, as Peter says, but not living for human passions, but for the will of God. So things like scripture study, memorizing the word of God. It could be things like worshiping in the presence of God. It could be service, acts of service towards one another. It could be fellowship. It could be generosity and giving. There's a variety of different ways, but do you see these two different ways of thinking according to Peter? If our goal is to 
crucify the flesh and step away from the things that are destroying our soul and to step into the will of God, we are then to put in practice, holy practices that can act like rails that guide us from one to the other. Now, this is not self-transformation. We cannot change ourselves by the flesh. Paul said this, right? Romans chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Disciplines are not an active behavior. They are a passive posture. It is simply you in some way or another saying, I I submit and surrender myself to God. When I read the Bible... You're not, uh, you're not to you know, open up the Bible and be like, if I read three chapters today, God will love me. But if we were to take on this mindset, we'd be saying, I just want to, my mind is filled with a bunch of junk. It's been a long week. All I've been reading are the headlines and social media. I'm depressed by that. I want to fill my mind with truth, right? Examples. You are posturing yourself for the move of God. The first one is holy practice is very important. But the second one, and this isn't in any particular order, but is the Holy Spirit. Peter would end this passage by saying, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Live in the spirit the way God does does. You cannot live a godly life apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in you. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand holy practices in your, at your disposal. If you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you, you're not constantly surrendering to his presence. You're going to fail miserably and you're going to wake up on Monday and go, I can't do this. And wake up on Tuesday going, I can't do this. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're going to wake up and go like, I might as well not even go to worship. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the power of the Christian spirit who promises to indwell believers. Do you know that? Like Jesus, as soon as he dies on the cross and rises from the dead, the resurrection, and does a few miracles and talks to people for like 40 days, he leaves and when they're scared, he says, it's actually better for you that I leave because as soon as I leave, I'm sending a helper Now, for those of you that think of the Holy Spirit as this abstract entity out there, and you're like, how do I interact with the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you, holy practices. Anytime you say, I'm going to do this and open myself up to a move of God, you're choosing to interact with the Holy Spirit who steps in through that practice to change your old desires and your old practices and to give you new ones. So when we fast, when we decide, you know, for breakfast, I'm not going to eat food. If you're doing that, because you're like, if I fast, God will hear my prayers. Doing it for the wrong reasons. But what if you were to say, you know, on Friday morning, 
I'm just so overcome by my idolatry. It's not even food. Like, it's just so many things in my life that have a grip on me. I'm enslaved to pleasure and passion. So on Friday, I'm going to skip breakfast and lunch, or maybe more. And in place of feeding my, my fleshly appetites, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to fan the appetite of my spirit. I'm going to train my body to know that it's not in charge. You know what would happen if you did that? Your body would learn who's in charge. Your spirit would begin to be developed. Or say you do this, you know, I, I have this, I, I work 60 hours a week, constantly emailing, people are constantly text messaging me, everything about my life is like this problem and doing that and working and paying the bills and making it, and I'm constantly surrounded by noise. Even when I sleep in my bed where it's quiet, my mind is filled with noise. And so maybe you're like, I'm going to drive up the 154, plop down on lizard's mouth where no one can get me. I'm going to leave my phone in my car and sit in silence and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me and to pierce through the noise. Do you know what would happen if you practiced to serve one another instead of demanding to be served? It would begin to form you. It would begin to shape you in such a way that you could receive from the Lord. Do you know what happened if you opened yourself up to generosity and giving? There were moments in my life with uh, my wife, Brianna. We've been married for eight years. And from the beginning, yeah, holler. <laughs> we decided we're going we're gonna to tithe together. We're going to give 10% of all that we get back to the Lord, and sometimes more. And there were moments in our life where we didn't know how we were going to pay for our rent. There were moments in some of those days where we would open up the cupboards and there would be nothing there. We didn't know what we were going to eat the next day. We didn't know if we were going to have a home the next day. And we had that tithe. And we looked at each other, and there were moments where we were like, we could easily spend this on bills, and I don't think God would, would be upset with us. And we'd look at each other, and we'd make eye contact, and we'd be like, no. He's never let us down. Far be it from us to trust in our own checkbook than God. We are doing this as an act of worship. And we would do that, not knowing where the next meal would come. And every single time, God would move in our midst. There were times where random bags of groceries would show up at our doorstep. There were times where checks would come in the mail. It wasn't millions, you know. It was just enough to pay for a bill. We didn't tell anybody about that. We just decided, hey, we're going to choose to honor God. We're going to make space in our lives, disciplines and practices to worship our God. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but we want to be formed by this. And you know what it did? Over the years of doing that, it began to shape our understanding of God. Now, 10 years later, we really trust God. 
and we're able to step out in faith because we've seen that. All of these things are areas in which we're opening up space for God to move. Listen, you guys, you have to have that mindset. I'm not calling you to some religious type of like ritualistic Christianity. Just do a bunch of stuff. Just read the Bible every day for whatever reason. But if you are not engaging in some type of behavior, some type of holy practices, if you're not opening up your Bible, if you're not speaking to God, if you're not spending time in meditation, if you're not worshiping, if you're not doing anything, how can you hope to survive the Christian life? You say, well, I don't have time for any of those things. I don't have time for practices. Yes, you do. You practice thousands of things every day, and those things are shaping you into the person that you have become today. You are practicing pride, and you are practicing work, and you are practicing selfishness, and you are practicing recreation and relationships and good things and bad things. Your life is a practice. All I'm calling you to do is to make space in that to practice the presence of God. Some of you may say, well, practices and disciplines seem, to, seem so dry and mechanical. I don't like that. I just kind of like to be like led by the Spirit, just free flow. Hey, if you're able to do that and to have a thriving relationship with the Lord, by all means, some of you are trying to do that, and the last time that you, you opened up the Word of God was on Christmas. I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on you. I, I'm saying it's worth it. And sure, all of these things can be abused. If you make the ritual your end goal, certainly. Reading the Bible can be the driest thing. If your approach is, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm supposed to. But if, these pra- if practices and rituals, even just the most basic ones, are for the end goal of knowing God and posturing yourself to receive, could change your life. One author tells a story about an elderly widow friend. He said, once told me that she thinks of her husband most when crossing a bridge. She explained that early in their long life together, she and her husband developed a habit of kissing each other every time they crossed the bridge. She couldn't remember how this little ritual began, but they were always faithful to it. If he was driving and the traffic was heavy, we would wait for the, for the next stop, but he, we would never forget to kiss each other when we went across that bridge. To this day, she cannot cross a bridge without sensing his presence. We're not just called to put away old habits. We're called to instill new habits that can create space for the Spirit of God to move. I'm charging you believers, don't do nothing on Monday. Yes, it is by the grace of God that we're saved and by the power of the Holy Spirit, but don't fail to participate in what he wants to do in your life. Where are you with this? Some of you asking that question, why doesn't my life look, like, uh, look any different than it used to be? Perhaps because there's lacking from your life one of these two things, the power of the Holy Spirit or spirit-empowered habits. Some of you might not even be Christians. Maybe you thought you were because you, you kept going to church, 
but truly, if you were to examine your own life, you'd be like, I, I, don't, I don't even know if I know the Lord. Course of action for you is to fall on your face, put down your weapons, metaphorically speaking, your rebellion against God, fall on your face, repent of your sins, and say, Lord, I want more of you. I want to know you, and I want the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon me and change me from the inside out. Some of you are believers, you've been walking with Christ for years, but you have not tasted of the power of the Holy Spirit yet. And for you, you need to do a similar thing. Fall on your face and say, God, I cannot live this life apart from your spirit. Spirit of the living God, fall upon me with a fresh feeling of your nature and of your power and change me and teach me how to walk in your ways. And then there's a third type of person. You've got all of that stuff. But you wake up on Monday and you just free for all it. And Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Wednesday come around and Satan is throttling you. And the culture and society is throttling you. And the passions of your flesh are throttling you. And the Bible is calling you to gird up your loins and create a different path. And for some of you, all you need to do is read the Bible for like five minutes, man. And be like, hey... If I am taking in all of this information from the world, the least that I could do is to see what God says about me. You either need the power of the Spirit or you need Spirit-empowered habits. What is it? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as we begin to focus our minds on the presence and the Spirit and the power of God, Facing what Peter has called us into, a life of self-denial for the sake of Christ, we have to understand, none of this will ever make sense until Christ appears to us so lovely that we're willing to lose anything in order to experience it. As we sing, let's put that first and foremost before our minds. And maybe we could just start out together with that prayer. Lord, I just want to know you more. I just want more of you. Truth be told, sometimes I love my sin more than you, and I, I'm disgusted by that. I want more of you, Lord. If that's your prayer this morning, God will answer it. Heavenly Father, have your way as we sing. As we bow on the carpets, as we take of the sacraments, as we receive prayer, as we lift our hands, as we sing words, let your spirit be known and may you transform us from the inside out. We don't just want to know you more, we want our lives to look different. That the world outside looking in that is so traumatized by so many things may see in us different way to live and a different hero to chase. By your precious name we pray.